Well, Jesus is risen. He's risen, yes? All right, he is alive. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for that scripture reading. And uh, we are going to read actually John 20 and 21, but we'll get to it as we go through our message. And so uh, you'll get the full message. <laughs> so it's good. Um, it's good to be alive in the Lord. Amen. Uh, Jesus is alive. We worship a risen king. And he is seated at the right hand, and he lives to make intercession for us right now. And uh, it is good to be in Christ. So um, I'm so happy to just be here and share this message with you uh, to worship God together. So as we look into the Word, I'm going to just ask, let's uh, go into the, to prayer once again. And uh, let's just really ask the Lord to open our hearts. Uh, Jesus was walking with his disciples along the road to Emmaus, and he opened their eyes to see the Scriptures. And that's what we want to do. We want to ask Jesus to open our eyes to see uh, who he really is. So please join me in a word of prayer uh, right now. Lord, you are the risen king. Jesus, uh, you're the one that we worship along with billions of Christians around the world. This day, Easter, Resurrection Sunday. God, we... We praise you, Jesus. We declare you are King and Lord, that you conquered death. The sin has been pay fully paid for through your death on the cross, and now we've been given new life. We thank you, Lord, that we can come before you to worship you, reconciled through your son, Jesus. And I pray that you would open our hearts, our eyes, to your word. And Lord, uh, draw us to you once again. We thank you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are here with us now. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, um, this is a special Sunday, as is every Sunday. Uh, every Sunday, we worship a risen king. Uh, and this Sunday, in particular, as Easter, we especially worship and acknowledge what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And my question to all of us here is, what difference does Easter make, right? Uh, Pastor Lily, I, I, I appreciated her prayer as she came up here, and she said that, help us not to worship just an event. Uh, that we don't just look at once a year, we come for Good Friday, Good Friday service, and Easter, and like this is some special event. That's not what this is about. This is about worshiping a person, Jesus Christ, whom we give our allegiance to every single day, every week, privately and corporately as a church. And my question is this, what does it mean that Jesus is risen? What does that actually mean for your life, for my life, for us as a church? I was reading uh, last night and just this update uh, of a friend, of a couple, uh, missionary couple friend that uh, Mimi and I have. We've known them for many, many years. And they're serving in a location that's very, very secretive. Um, so I can't, I'm not going to divulge uh, much details in this. But uh, I will share this much that, you know, they've been in this field for six years now. And they were just sharing in their update that, you know, they have labored very, very hard. Uh, they've labored hard for themselves for the people they're trying to reach out to, for the people on their team, but they haven't seen much fruit. It's been very difficult. 
And they serve in a region where the weather conditions are not like sunny Southern California. You know, we have so much sunshine and it's so pleasant here uh, most of the year. Uh, but where they're serving at, the uh, weather conditions are quite harsh. It's not the kind of place that you would naturally want to just live and volunteer in at all. And even over the past several months, uh, this particular wife, uh, she contracted Bell's palsy. So uh, if you're not familiar with, with what Bell's palsy is, it's when half of your face becomes paralyzed. She came back to states, tried to recover, but she didn't have enough time to recuperate. Uh, there was not sufficient time to rest, but she had to go back into the field. So there she is. She still has a Bell's palsy. And, uh, you know, as, as I was reading the story or I was reading, uh, reading their update, one thing that really struck me is how much their hearts, though, were not filled with self-pity. Uh, you know, it's very easy to just say, hell, woes, you know, look at my, my situation. Oh, this is so terrible. This is so awful. And to try to elicit pity. But that was not the point of why they were sharing these things. In fact, their newsletter was filled with praise to God. You know, filled with gratitude to God. And in fact, this wife was basically saying, I thank God so much, even for this condition, that I have Bell's palsy. And it's like, what? <laughs> you know, thank God for Bell's palsy. Why? Because, because of this, it's given her access to, a, to the people group she's actually trying to reach out to, who happens to have a specialist or a, a, a medical specialist in this field. And this has been, you could say, kind of a hidden blessing in disguise for her. And even though the, the treatment she's getting is far superior than the kind of treatment she would get here, and it's definitely not very pleasant, uh, her heart was just filled with gratitude, with praise. And they are learning to trust God. They're learning to trust God for their work, the future, their health, all of these things, they're learning to just trust God completely for. What can possibly cause a person like this, this couple, willing to give up their comforts, you know, the comforts of where they came from in the East Coast, their own home, they had a very nice home out there, um, to go out into this very, very rugged, condition, region of the world, uh, in a spiritually very dark place, and be filled with praise to God, gratitude to God. If the resurrection of Jesus from the dead were not a reality, this could never happen. We would look at couples like this, a family like this, and we would just think, what are you doing? That is just so foolish, you know? Like you could have lived life. You could have lived it nicely. You could have lived large. You could have been really comfortable. But it's the reality of the resurrection. Otherwise, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And my point that I want to share with you this morning is this. Living the resurrection life is not just for the missionaries, you know, out there. It's not the, quote, the spiritually elite, you know, people that we think, oh, well, that's them. That's the missionary. That's their calling. And that's, that's what they do. And the reality of the resurrection is for you and I. 
very ordinary, ordinary people, but people who are learning to follow Jesus day after day here in this world, in this culture. What does it mean to follow Jesus, to believe and trust in the reality of the resurrection as followers of Jesus living in Los Angeles, Monterey Park, living as a full-time mother, as a is in the marketplace, as a student, um, in your schools. What does it mean? What difference does it mean? And what does it mean when we are faced with our own challenges and struggles and when we're faced with doubts and we're faced to, with maybe temptations to, to question God's goodness? What difference does the reality of the resurrection make? Well, for these disciples, in John chapter 20, what uh, Vincent just read earlier, it made all the difference in the world. And it's because of John chapter 20 and John chapter 21 that the course of history has been totally altered and our own life can be completely changed and transformed. So let's go back to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, the disciples here are in a state of just absolute despair. Everything that they thought of when they thought of Jesus was completely just demolished at the cross. I mean, it was just um, all their notions or ideas about God, about Jesus, about what it means to follow. Um, it was just, yeah, it just completely went away. And they're in this state of despair and hopelessness. In John chapter 20, we read this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. What's really interesting here is that the very first witness to the empty tomb is Mary. Mary Magdalene is someone who would have followed along with Jesus, along with the disciples, and she, she no doubt would have ministered along with the disciples, um, along with Jesus to the others. But, you know, if the gospel writer wanted to fabricate the, the resurrection, they wouldn't have written that Mary was the first eyewitness to the tomb. Because back then, uh, if you want to just make up a story about Jesus, you would have definitely written it was a guy because a woman's testimony in a court of law was considered to be invalid. But what John is doing is he's just simply reporting the facts. This is what happened. But Mary has this special heart for the Lord, for Jesus. And she's, she follows and she goes to this tomb early in the morning, tells the other disciples and so Peter went out, it says in verse 3, with the other disciple, and they were going toward the, the tomb. Verse 4, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. You know who that other disciple is? It's John. I love how he just says that, right? I, I kind of just outran him, you know? <laughs> it's like his way of like, yeah, you know, I beat him to it a little bit. But he says, he, he refers to himself in third person, right? The other disciple. Um, Anyway, so the other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first, and verse 5, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Uh, it's interesting. Some, some people think, well, you know, sometime in the middle of the night, someone must have come in. They've, they stole Jesus' body. But if that were the case, would you find this neatly folded, like, linen cloth just sitting there? There's just no way, Right? I mean, everything here in this whole account just really points to the whole reality that this tomb was empty, but Jesus rose. And it says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. You know, if you look at the following verses, we're not going to look at the rest of uh, well, we're not going to look at the, the, the rest of chapter 20, the, the large chunk of it, but if you look at the Bible, you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you look at 1 Corinthians as well, where Paul talks about the resurrection, you'll find that all the disciples had very different reactions in the aftermath of the empty tomb, of the resurrection. And John and Mary, even, even Mary Magdalene, they, they just have this simple love, this simple trust in Jesus that I love. They saw this empty tomb. They didn't require a whole lot of explanation. They didn't require a whole lot of uh, just trying to understand all the details. But it's, the Bible says that they just simply believed. And what a blessing it is just to be able to just simply believe. Put your trust in Jesus. To simply believe. Peter was not like that, and neither was Thomas. Uh, we find later on, actually, that Thomas was one of these disciples. He was the scientist. Um, if you are into the Myers-Briggs, he's, into, he's the INTJ. Are you guys into the, not, okay, that's the scientist. So he's all about the facts, the data. He's an empiricist among the band of disciples. He needs, he needs the proof. And Jesus appears to Peter and says, okay, uh, appears to Thomas and says, Thomas, you need the proof? Okay, I'll show you the proof. He doesn't despise Thomas because he's like that. He says, here, look at my hands. You can go ahead and even touch it if you'd like. Because Jesus knows how to reach every single person where they're at. There are some people like John, they just simply trust and believe. There are others like Thomas, ah, you know, I'm not going to believe until I see it. And this is what Jesus does. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of Jesus to all of us. And he knows how to meet each one of us where we're at in different places. And then it says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So these disciples didn't fully get it. They didn't fully understand. Uh, even as Jesus was trying to explain to them while he was with them, then the disciples, I look at this in verse 10, it says that he just went back to their homes. It's like, ah, uh, you know, empty tomb. Okay, something must have happened. We don't know what. But, you know, we've, we just kind of give up. We're just going to go back home. That's it. Um, have you ever felt that way? Have you, ever, have you ever come to this point or have you ever felt that sometimes when your idea of Jesus 
or your idea of how God should be working in your life, it doesn't happen that way. And so you know what? You just kind of give up. You just say, you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to go back home. <laughs> um, I, I don't know what to make of this. But I don't know if I have the, the strength. And I don't know if I have the courage to just keep going on in my relationship with God. So I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go back home. Well, Jesus, the great thing about Jesus is this. Sometimes people give up on Jesus. And sometimes in our hearts, we kind of just get tired and we give up. But Jesus doesn't give up. That's not the type, that's not the God that we find in the Bible. In John chapter 21, I'm going to kind of skip here. Because John chapter 21 all of a sudden talks about Peter. It focuses on this disciple in particular, on Peter, in John chapter 21. And we're going to see what Jesus does and how Jesus reaches out to Peter. But it says in John chapter 21, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. And John says, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to them, we'll, we'll go with you. We're, we're, we're going to go along. And they went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. You know, here's Peter and he, can't, he doesn't understand what's going on. All he knows, he's still in this kind of state where he's st still filled with this shame, right? Because he had denied Jesus three times. He was the leader of, the, the, of this band of disciples. He was the one who would boldly say, you know, everyone else, they may fall away. I'm going to die with you, Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm totally there with you. I'm going to go all the way with you. And he had what we call just a major fail, a major fall. And he doesn't exactly know what to make of this empty tomb, but, you know, he's, just, he's still in this kind of despondency, this kind of shame, and he's just saying, I'm going home. Hey, I'm just going to go fishing. Anyone want to come along? All right, I'll go with you. This is what he knows. This is what he's comfortable with. And here we find... Jesus. Verse 4 says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land but about 100 yards off. 
Now, when you read this, does this, does this remind you of something else that happened earlier with Peter? The first time when Peter really came to know who Jesus was, it's not recorded in the Gospel of John. It's actually recorded in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 5, Peter is he's going out fishing, and Jesus appears to Peter and says, why don't you let down your nets on this side of the boat? And they let down the nets, and then so much fish went into the nets that the Bible says that the nets began to break. But what's interesting is this. In Luke chapter 5, as soon as Peter experiences this huge haul of fish, right, something he's so familiar with as a fisherman, and, and then he's stunned, he's overwhelmed because he recognizes at that point who Jesus is. It says that Peter fell face down to the ground, and you know his words for, to Jesus at that point were this, Lord, depart from me. Like, please, like, get away from, like, please. I am a sinful man. This was the words of Peter to Jesus. And he began to recognize who Jesus was right there. But here, in John chapter 21, the very same thing happens. Jesus uses the same way to say to Peter, Peter, let down your nets. And this time, Peter's reaction is this. His reaction is to just jump into the sea and run towards the loving voice of his master, Jesus. The first time, Peter knew his sinfulness, but he thought, you know, I, I, don't, deserve, like, I don't deserve to be in your presence. I can't be with you. You cannot be with me. But over the course of time, as he got to know Jesus, in his shame, in his failure, he heard this voice and he immediately recognized, yes, I am not worthy. I don't deserve to be in your presence. But I, he recognized that Jesus is a forgiving master. He's a forgiving Lord. And he immediately goes to Jesus. Some of you feel here, perhaps, that you, know, you come to church and um, you try to do life in a way, but you are maybe disconnected from Jesus. You're disconnected from God. And for some of it, for some of you, it's because there's just this shame and there is this real hidden guilt and shame that you're, you're grappling with and you have not learned to hear the voice of Jesus to say, come, come. You've not heard this loving voice of Jesus who offers his forgiveness. But this is who Jesus is. He offers his grace, his forgiveness to Peter. And we see it here when it says that when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, and fish laid out on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. 
And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask, dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You see, when, G when Peter heard this, this loving, gentle voice of Jesus, he comes to Jesus, and Jesus immediately says, hey, let's, let's eat. Let's have this meal together. Let's have breakfast. The last time that they shared this meal with Jesus was the night before his crucifixion, on Thursday night, the night of the Passover. And on that night, as Jesus is having this meal, this final meal before his death, his crucifix, before the crucifixion on the Passover, Jesus uses this occasion to, to make this promise with the disciples to say, I'm going to make this covenant with you, this promise that by my death on the cross, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That you are bound to me forever. And here, as they're having this meal together, this is Jesus' way of saying, Peter, no matter how big your fall was, no matter how big your failure was, you're bound to me. I'm bound to you. I'm committed to you to the very end. And there is no sin, there's no failure, there's no shame that is too great for God's grace, for Jesus. You know, when you are at this low, the lowest point, when you are at the point when you feel your unworthiness, when you feel the, the sin and the shame and the guilt, actually, you are in a very, very good place because that is a place where Jesus can meet you in his grace. That is exactly the point that Jesus can offer his love and forgiveness. To, to be at that place is a place where Jesus can really meet you, can really touch you, can change you. This is what it means. This is the good news. This is, this is what Peter experienced, and this is what would transform his heart, his life. When you experience the forgiveness of Jesus at your lowest place, this is when God can begin to just completely take your life in a whole different direction. Um, you know, I, I love, do you guys, do you guys, uh, my favorite musical, have you guys seen uh, Les Miserables? Yeah? How many of you guys are Les Mis fans? Oh, yeah, good, good. I knew, I knew you guys were, were very special. <laughs> yeah, Les Mis is great. Um, but I love that scene, right, where Jean Valjean is out of prison. And as he's out of prison, um, he goes to this priest's home. And this priest offers his hospitality, his kindness, but Jean Valjean, still hardened by uh, 19 years of being in prison, he takes the priest's candles, he takes all the silverware, and then, you know, he, he uh, really just abuses the, this priest's uh, hospitality and his kindness, and, and he, he tries to make, a, make way. The police catch him, and then they return him back to the priest. And as they return back to the priest, Jean Valjean, like, he's expecting, okay, this is it. You know, I'm going back to prison. My life is over now. But the priest, 
does the very opposite, right? What he does is he tells Yao Valjean, well, you forgot these things to you. You forgot these like silver candle holders. Let me give this to you. This belong. You, why did you uh, leave without these? And he ex- experiences complete grace. And the priest's words to Jean Valjean is, I have purchased your soul for God. I have purchased your soul for God. And that's the turning point in his life. That's the turning point in which Jean Valjean goes from the cynical, hardened criminal to someone whose life is now dedicated to serving others selflessly, to completely giving his life to other people. And this is what Jesus does. What Jesus does is this. He will expose sometimes our false trusts, our false hopes, all those things that maybe in our life that we were leaning on. And when you experience the failure of those false hopes and trusts, and you're at the, this point where you feel like, ah, feel like giving up. Shameful. This is the point where Jesus can most show his grace. That he is what your heart is looking for. And this is what happens. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because He said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times Jesus asked, and that third time especially just gets right at Peter's heart because Peter knows that Jesus could see his heart. He knows, he knows his heart completely. And Jesus wasn't asking three times because he's trying to rub it in or to berate him or anything like that. It was actually just as Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus is saying to Peter three times, feed my sheep, I forgive you. If you love me, do this out of your love for me. It's Jesus' way of restoring Peter, saying, Now, you are really useful. You're really useful for my purpose. Some of us may not be very useful for God's purpose because we're still too strong for our own good. We're still holding on to things other than Jesus in our life or we're still too reliant upon ourselves. But Peter has to be humbled. He has to come to this point where he realizes the deep love and forgiveness of Jesus. But he has to come to this point where he sees that in his power, he's a failure. He can't do it in his strength. But when he looks to Jesus, Jesus is the one who can do it. 
Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, one time when he was speaking at a church, someone introduced Hudson Taylor and they said, here is Hudson Taylor, this great servant of God who goes to China, he's preaching the gospel. And Hudson Taylor, as he comes to the pulpit and he, he goes before the people, he said this. His words were just simply, God uses those who are weak enough to rely upon him. That is very true. Are you too strong for the Lord to use? Peter had to recognize that apart from Jesus, he's completely powerless, completely weak. But when he comes to this point of complete failure, this is when he experiences the power and the grace of Jesus. And when you know your weakness, and you know how much you need Jesus day after day, you're in, you're in the prime position to be used by God. Your, great, your greatest qualification to be used by God is not your strength. It's not, you know, filling out the strengths finder, okay, what's my strengths? What am I really good at? Your greatest qualifications is your weakness, relying completely on Jesus. That's what it means. And this is why Jesus can now really use Peter. Peter, you're qualified now. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Now you know. And this last part says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to, to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me, follow me. See, this last part is Jesus telling Peter, I mean, so far it's really great, right? Like, we, it's like his love, his forgiveness, this is really great. And then this last part, Jesus basically tells Peter, Peter, your life is not going to end well. In fact, to stretch out your hands, to have someone lead you where you don't want to go, to stretch out your hands was another phrase to say that you are going to be crucified. This was a common phrase, stretch out your hands, because it would lead to the cross. And this is what Jesus is revealing to Peter this is the kind of death that he would glorify God. And then Jesus calls to Peter, follow me now, follow me. It is the grace of God that can take you and I, sinful people, people who are failures, <laughs> right? Sinful people to experience his grace, his forgiveness, but then to turn our life away from ourselves, away from our self-pursuit, our self-goal, our, our own kingdom, to pursue what Jesus wants us to pursue. This is the grace of God. This is the gospel. Peter, who, was, who oftentimes spoke before he thought, who was brash, who was bold, who was filled with pride, who... Um, thought, you know, I can do this. I can handle it. I, 
I, I, can, I can do this. I have to be humbled. But only as he's humbled does Jesus say, okay, this is now the death you're going to glorify me with. It's the, it's the complete, his life would be completely transformed from himself to serving Jesus to being a witness to Jesus to the point of death. And history records that Peter was indeed crucified. And he was not crucified. He was crucified upside down. Why? Because Peter said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. So please crucify me upside down. So church history records that he was crucified upside down. Jesus calls you and I. If we call ourselves believers, followers of Jesus, those who have received his grace, those who know his forgiveness, it's his power that can work, but he calls you and I to follow him all the way to the very end. And whatever it is that you and I go through, whatever challenges, whatever situations, whether it's health challenges, work challenges, whether it's financial, whatever it is, but in those, the day-to-day of life, what does it mean, going back even to the beginning, that our hearts can joyfully and with gratitude just praise God, saying, God, my life belongs to you. Jesus, you gave yourself for me. The reason why Jesus could ask Peter to follow him to death is because Jesus himself would give his life for Peter first. Jesus told Peter, where, you, where I go, you cannot follow but I will lay down my life for you. And when I lay down my life for you, I will, I will draw you to myself. I will show you the extent of my love for you. As I lay my life for you, I call you now to follow me to the end. Trust me. Trust my love. Jesus laid down his life for us. And now he's risen. And the resurrection of Jesus means that everything has been completely settled. Our sins are forgiven. Our future is secure. This life is very short, very temporary. Everything that we experience in this life, it will be nothing compared to eternity. And it means that through whatever God allows in your life, he promises that just as he gave his son, how will he not along with him freely give you all things that you truly need? that are truly good for you. That God will promises his presence, his love, all the way to the very end. So now follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Glorify Jesus with your life. Glorify God. Our life to be freed now in service to God and to others. This is the resurrection. This is, this is, the power of the gospel. And as Herman Baving said, that the resurrection of Jesus is the amen of the Father placed upon the it is finished of the Son. Jesus is alive. He is alive. He is king. And he reigns. And he gives you new life. And he, he lives to make intercession for you and I. And so through the power of Jesus, let us follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
Um, Lord, teach us what it means to follow you, to live the life that you called us to live, a life of love to you, a life of love to others through the power of the resurrection. We thank you, God, for your redeeming grace, your forgiveness of our major fall of our sins. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who is alive, that we follow a living God, a living King. Amen.